Welcome to the Geneva Graduate Institute in Conversation with podcast series. I'm Lena Menge, Manager of Strategic Partnerships and Public Relations. This episode features a conversation between Enrico Letta, President of the Jacques Delors Institute and former Prime Minister of Italy, and Christine Lutranger, Executive Director and Senior Researcher of the Albert Hirschman Center on Democracy at the Geneva Graduate Institute. This discussion focuses on the challenges European democracies are currently facing and highlights concrete proposals towards building more effective ways for citizens to participate. President Letta, thank you very much for accepting to participate in this podcast. Our conversation today is focused on the European construction or reconstruction of its democratic project in the face of the populist challenge. More specifically, I would like to explore with you the responses that you have been leading in this context and discuss how they relate to the different futures that are being imagined. I would like to start with the growing electoral strength that right-wing and populist parties have displayed in Europe in recent years. We saw it also very recently with the elections in Italy and Sweden. My first question relates to the mode of engagement of these parties. How is it affecting the ways in which the other parties and movements have been mobilizing and what they have achieved? First of all, I think there's a, a big question related and uh, around the language that we use. And uh, that was the case during last elections, but it is, I think, at the European level, one of the most divisive topics Uh, if you take uh, the different relationship uh, between parties, populist parties or traditional parties. I think when I mean language, I mean, first of all, the way in which we uh, raise questions or we try to answer questions, or the way in which, for instance, we use social media or we try to apply uh, the normal development of arguments. And there, I, I think there's the most important and the most, uh, I would say, high level of difference. If I may say, the, the key topic is, first of all, about the complexity of the language we use. I, in my last electoral campaign, but also in the, in the, the elections that we uh, tried to, to follow during the last years in Europe, we saw the big difference among uh, parties and uh, using different ways to reduce complexity to simple topics, simple statements. And uh, I feel uh, populist parties, I would say, more effective in uh, trying to raise topics, linking them to day-by-day -day life of people. And I saw our problem, I uh, say our problem, uh, speaking about traditional parties, in the way in which we use general terms and not the image or the experience of one single person. And general terms means keeping distance, keeping distance in empathic terms or in uh, the way in emotional terms. And I think there's the, the big topic. Emotions are the ways in which 
populist parties usually are able to keep uh, a close relationship with voters. And when I say emotions, first of all, I say fears. And there's the, the, there is the big difference in uh, the fact that usually traditional parties are trying to reassure people uh, and populist parties are trying to uh, raise fears. And uh, last experience in Europe, of course, fears were at the top uh, because of the war. And the war, the aggression, the Russian aggression to Ukraine played a, a huge role because uh, raising fears was not so difficult in a period in which the war was uh, bringing fears, was creating uh, an environment, a fears environment. And that was, in my view, very, very useful for a right and populist parties. So language, emotions, fears, not general terms, but uh, names of uh, normal people and experience of normal people. And that was, in my view, one of the most important issues in the last period. Of course, I'm trying to be very objective in my analysis. I can be less objective. I can be more biased. But if I may say, I think we have to recognize that sometimes populist language is more effective because of this capacity to use emotions, I think they are a problem. And the big risk is to use emotions always in terms of raising fears. And I think it's, uh, at the end of the day, uh, it's, something of, it's something very negative because raising fears means that once you win the elections, it is very difficult to deal with expectations. And, uh, and then the frustration is behind the corner there, immediately present. To build on this idea of uh, the expectations that populist parties nurture in, in their campaigns, in their claims, I would like to connect with another element uh, that uh, was very powerful for me also when I read your book, Anima Cacciavite, uh, Saul and, and Screwdriver, in precisely analyzing the context in which uh, democratic politics is at play now in, uh, in Europe and in Italy. And you say in, in this book uh, at some point that we have allowed the response to legitimate needs of protection to be the exclusive prerogative of the populist right. And you have called for a change in paradigm. So on, on that, I would like to also hear you on, on the inclusiveness of democracy, uh, both in terms of the inclusiveness of participation and inclusiveness of policies which connects to this point on solidarity and social welfare as essential components of democracy. And in, in this point is, is, I think, very effectively captured in, in your book when you connect the end of the month with the end of the world. I would like, therefore, to ask you what the states in Europe, in the European Union and beyond, have delivered in terms of social policies and welfare, and according to you, what they should deliver. Uh, you know, I I start by by my experience in, in the last electoral campaign we had in Italy it was for me a nightmare. The fact that we were in the worst summer ever with catastrophic climate disasters we had on every subject, 
So the climate change drama was there around us and we weren't able to impose the subject as the, term, the subject number one. Uh, why? Not because of the lack of uh, presence of signals, clues about the fact that climate change is really a danger, but because in the same period, the problem of the end of the month was the most crucial issue for the people. When I say end of the month, we had during uh, this electoral campaign the problem of cost of energy. When you pay no more 100%, 100 euros as you used to pay normally, but you pay 400 euros suddenly. Or if you have an SME, if you run an SME, and usually you pay 100,000 euros, and suddenly you have to pay 500,000 euros, and you don't have money. And if you have to borrow money to uh, cover these costs, that will uh, create a problem for uh, your for the jobs that you are hiring, and uh, uh, it's a disaster for your investments, and you are close to stop your activity. It is clear that the problem of the end of the world comes second. And this is why I think we have to consider that one of the most important challenges in the future is how to combine social sustainability and environmental. And if we don't succeed in creating this link and having policies, subventions, investments, able to uh, link these two sustainabilities and making one from two, and not having a sort of uh, conflict uh, between the two. So at the end of the months and the end of the world, if you have the problem of the end of the months, end of the world will always be second, will always be marginalized by the problem of how to get the end of the months. And uh, for instance, uh, the, all the topic of uh, mobility, of the way to produce energy by renewables, in my view, we have really to connect it uh, with the social sustainability. Uh, and that means long-term investments. That means long-term investments at, first of all, European level. This is why there's a European topic that is crucial, because you can have this kind of uh, uh, European long-term view that is the only view that allows you to get the two together to combine the two and not to have uh, first the end of the month and then if we have energy or psychic energies or money uh, to invest in the second, so environmental. No, uh, we have to combine the two and the only way to do it is to have long-term investments at European level able then to be applied at national level. That means that we need a strong European level able to have these long-term investments with binding rules, without the possibility to change it, reducing the targets, because we have to uh, higher the level of the targets, higher the bar. If we don't, then at the end of the month we'll win, always. And uh, if we marginalize the end of the world topics, then we will continue to be 
on the direction that we are having today. We are in the, in the days in which uh, COP27 uh, is taking place. But for the present promises that governments are launching, uh, uh, we will be at the disaster at the end of this century. Even with the application of the promises, can you imagine if even these promises are not applied? And I think uh, we have to change completely the direction and the strategies, and we need to do so a strong boost uh, by and from the European uh, Union, because only this level can be effective. And that brings us to say that participation Political participation needs to have this uh, European level. Otherwise, if you have only participation at national or local level, then it would be impossible to get these results. These uh, issues that you have uh, highlighted, climate change, environmental and social sustainability, are very much intergenerational issues that will primarily impact young and future generations. And, and it very much connects, I think, with this dimension of youth participation that you have yourself been uh, very active on. And uh, I would like to, to hear you about, about this. To what extent, according to you, can we understand youth participation or its absence as a reconfiguration of exit, voice and loyalty, to use Albert Hirschman's framework? I'm very happy to, to try to use this uh, triade, uh, uh, Hirschman triade, exit voice and loyalty, to this topic that is so crucial. You know, youth today, th there are many issues related to youth participation. First of all, the fact that usually in Europe, youth is a minority. There are only few countries where you have a large uh, youth in terms of uh, part of the society. My country, for instance, Italy, youth is, is a marginal and very small part of the society. In our aging societies, youth are playing, uh, unfortunately, a very marginal role. So the key issue there is how to be able to give voice to youth. The main problem is marginality in quantitative terms and the fact that when you mentioned the term exit, in reality, my first meaning when I think what does it mean for the Italian youth exit, that means at the end of the day, the exodus that is today having a place in the fact that Italian young people are leaving the country because they don't find in Italy the, the possibility, the opportunities that they want to catch. And they are leaving the country. Immigration today in Italy, the problem of immigration is not people coming, it's people leaving. And when I say people leaving, I say, first of all, young people leaving Italy. That is the main problem of exit. And uh, leaving the country, having a marginal voice, creates a big problem of loyalty, of course. So uh, how to reaffirm uh, this uh, exit voice loyalty and in terms of pushing loyalty and giving voice. Uh, of course, it's, uh, it's necessary to give power to, the, to youth, to give more voice to youth. One of, pro of the proposals I tried to introduce and to, uh, I would say, make successful was the fact that, for instance, to change uh, the average 
of the for the voting system and to and to allow people uh, 16 years old to to vote in uh, national elections is maybe too uh, little in terms of enlarging the way or empowering a voice of youth but it's something that we uh, can easily do is the fact that uh, to enlarge youth participation to allow people of 16 or 17 to vote or to create a sort of uh, blue quotas so we have the pink quotas uh, quota for for instance uh, women in in uh, board uh, of the companies of companies at european level why don't we introduce the same level of quotas for uh, young people in uh, in boards uh, to avoid to have uh, them out of the places where power is run uh, it, it's it's one very simple and i understand maybe one can say marginal once can can define marginal these kind of proposals but we have to start from marginal topics to raise the general topic the general topic is uh, the lack of voice of youth in our societies and the other point is that the only way to give voice to youth is to give importance and to give voice to the two main topics that are at the very core of youth engagement, environment and uh, individual rights. And uh, for instance, uh, in, in the electoral campaign, I, I saw in Italy uh, these two topics were completely marginalized. And it was a pity, I think it was a problem. It was the way in which youth was marginalized uh, during the, uh, all the electoral campaign. And I underline these topics and I would like to say that the only way to push youth participation is to raise environment, individual rights. And I think the future of our societies will be a future of uh, youth, of success of youth and participation of youth, uh, if we are able to raise these uh, two main topics. This theme of youth engagement and youth participation is also central to one of the research projects that we have here at uh, the Institute at the Albert Hirschman Center on Democracy, where we map the uh, practices of engagement and protest of young people across four European countries. And we see on the one hand what you have uh, highlighted here, that youth-led social movements share some common frustrations with the ways in which climate change is not tackled. And at the same time, we see that since the pandemic, more and more youth have turned towards local activism and solutions that are not necessarily national or global, but really embedded in their everyday lives. At the same time, those issues need to be tackled at uh, the global and at least European level. So I would like to invite you to provide some concluding reflections on the transnational dimensions of European democracy and on the extent to which you see that democratic action uh, has been moving towards this level. The European Union democracy is one of the main topics uh, for the future because many decisions, many important decisions for uh, the daily life of people in Europe are taken at the European level. But we know very well that uh, the vote of citizens uh, is very influential for local elections, for national elections, very few influence or very little influence uh, at the European level. A citizen, I vote in my city, 
Pisa in Italy, where I belong. And I, my vote, I know that my vote can influence the future of my city, can change the, the mayor of the city or can confirm the mayor. The same at national level, I see the influence of my vote. I agree with what government is doing. I confirm parties pushing the government. I want to change the government. I know who vote for. That is not the case at European level, where decisions are taken by a complex system, democratic system, but very, very complicated system. And even the vote for the European Parliament is very weak, the link that we have with the way in which decisions are taken at the European level. This is why the European Union launched for the last two years uh, this very interesting exercise of the Conference on the Future of Europe. In this conference, after months and months of work with citizens working, was a conference pushing for new ideas on how to implement a new form of democracies and how to empower democracy at the transnational European level. And I underline one of them that is, in my view, the most important one, is, is the introduction of transnational lists for the election of the European Parliament. In reality, I think we can't continue voting only with national lists at the European Parliament. As Italian, I vote for the Italians. And I have an Italian member of parliament uh, representing my vote or my constituency. It is not enough because the decisions are European decisions. It's not just 27 uh, countries, one plus another. Uh, this is why I think we need to have transnational lists. I need to have these lists able to attract votes and voters not because of nationality of the vote or the member of the parliament that is elected by these votes, but because of the meanings, because of what they think, what the, the ideas of values or proposals is the only way to make Europe really a democracy, a true and full democracy. So I push for this idea of transnational lists. And uh, transnational lists, in my view, have to be connected with the choice of the President of the European Commission. We can't continue with the President of the European Commission a result of a negotiation, a diplomatic negotiation among uh, leaders of the European Council. It doesn't work. We need to link the President of the European Commission to the vote of the citizens and uh, to the vote of the transnationalists. I think it is crucial and it is uh, absolutely necessary to work in that direction is the way to implement some of the ideas of the Conference on the Future of Europe is a way to fulfill one of the big requests of citizens to have full democracy at European level. Thank you very much for sharing your analysis of the challenges that European democracy has been facing and also to, to share some concrete proposals towards building some more effective ways of participating and also some further legitimacy for Europe at the different scales at which citizens can participate. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. That was Enrico Letta and Christine Utranger discussing the European reconstruction of its democratic project in the face of populist challenges. For more information about the Institute, please visit graduateinstitute.ch 
I'm Lena Menge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.